0: What are the rules? Do dads bake and moms cook? Can grilled cheese solve everything? Can we honor our traditions while exploring new ones? Today's guest puts it all on the table. Sorry. On her blog, The Practical Kitchen. Our guest today is American born and raised, grew up in the Jewish community in Squirrel Hill of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, then lived in the melting pot of New York City before spending a couple years across the river New Jersey, then went down to Baltimore, and now she's busy filling her Los Angeles home with food from around the world. Rebecca Eisenberg is here to look at the fixed and flexible rules of balancing cultures in the kitchen. The Practical Kitchen. You can find her on Instagram at the.practical.kitchen, on Facebook at The Practical Kitchen, or on her blog, The Practical Kitchen. Let's go ahead and start the conversation. Welcome, Rebecca. So let's get started and let's go way back to the beginning. Was cooking a part of your family
1: culture growing up? You know, not really. My family is not a big food family. My mom and my grandma both cooked because they had to. They're not people who like love to cook. There wasn't a lot of technique or finesse or like secret ingredients or anything. All of the recipes I have, which my mom actually put into this like nice binder that she gave me when I moved out of the house, they all have 10 ingredients or less. They're super simple. Now that I know how to cook when I look at them, I'm like, "Oh, that's tomato sauce with a tablespoon of a spice blend." but they were really comforting, and it was good food and you know, I liked eating it. Food was not central to our our lives. We didn't have big, fancy dinners and and stuff like that. So I'm really kind of the first person in my family who really loves cooking, and I came to it kind of late, like I've always liked when I was younger, you know, like cooking and baking projects and stuff, but Really understanding how it works beyond just following recipes is something that I've come to in the past five or six years. And the thing that I've been really enjoying, like I said, is going back to these simple recipes I grew up eating and finding new ways to appreciate them or trying to recreate them using techniques that I know now that are still simple. Or, you know, I try to recreate some of the comfort foods that I've discovered as an adult because I had a kind of limited palate as a child.
0: Is that why you decided to start the practical kitchen or did which fed the other? Was the food love and testing things out in the kitchen first and then you thought, hey, I might as well share this? Or did you think, I really want to have a creative outlet and then you thought, okay, food is that outlet?
1: So it's a little bit of both. I started cooking more. Jimmy and I, uh, my husband and I actually started cooking more together when we moved in together. We kind of realized that we just made the same four or five recipes from our parents. Jimmy would make spaghetti or there was like a turkey scallopini or a veal scallopini. So like all of our foods were very beige. They were served on a ton of pasta we need to like mix this up a little bit. Like we're enjoying cooking. We're eating a lot of takeout. It's expensive. We should be able to do this at home. We finally were like, let's try making this less haphazard instead of going to the grocery store and just pulling (laughs) things that seem interesting and then forgetting that we have them and them going bad. We subscribed to some cooking magazines. We picked up some cheap cookbooks We started planning weekly what we were gonna eat, not in a like, let's control our diets and measure all our meal points sort of way, but just in a like, let's make sure we're buying things that we're actually gonna use, pay attention to how we use them. And since we had the binder from my mom, we bought two new binders and we saved, one of them we saved recipes that we want to try. And the other one, once we try a recipe, and if we like it, we move it over to the other binder. And we were like, let's just keep doing this for as long as we can. And at the end of it, we'll end up with a whole new set of recipes that we've tried and liked and are easy to make.
0: So the question is, if you don't like a recipe, Mm -hmm. where does that go?
1: Oh, straight into the trash.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's no second chances in this kitchen.
1: Well, sometimes we save something because it sounds really good. And then we make it and we're like, oh, this was so simple. We actually don't need a recipe for it or they overcomplicated this and we could actually just do it this other way and we would sort of make it our own. It would be like, this is interesting. We learned something from it, but we don't need to save this recipe for later. You know, But there is something satisfying about being able to say like, we tried it. Are we keeping it? Or are we not keeping it? Is it for us? Is it not for us?
0: Because it helps you kind of move on. Do you make notes?
1: The first time I make something, I try to follow it as closely as possible, but then we will make a lot of notes on them. I, I'm i all about writing in cookbooks directly on the pages, because I figure even if at some point I ever get rid of the cookbooks, which is unlikely, but say I did, that note is probably useful for whoever gets it next. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of what came first, the practical kitchen or the cooking, the cooking was definitely kind of first and the baking. And it's funny, growing up, my mom cooked and my dad baked.
0: That's our house. I'm the cook and my husband is the baker. Because to me, baking is like chemistry. That's too exact.
1: (laughs) That's exactly what my mom says. (laughs) I'm like, you're the
0: engineer. You do the baking. It just seems to go hand in hand to me. And I'm the cook because it's like creative and there's a bit more freedom in it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I get it. I get your mom. (laughs) So when I was little, I thought that was like how gender roles worked. I was like, all moms cook, all dads bake. And so it's kind of funny. Jimmy actually does a lot more of our cooking. Uh Um, And I do a lot more of our baking. Of course, for the blog, it's all stuff that I do. And Jimmy has actually written a few posts for it. But yeah, he tends, we've sort of flipped it a little bit. He doesn't really like baking, I like cooking, but we, we have slightly different approaches to it. But the food blog really came about, it's kind of a boring, practical answer where I was between jobs, I was freelancing, I had some extra time. And people have been telling me forever, because I've been posting on social media as I've been cooking more, they keep saying, like, you should start a food blog. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But like, there's a million of them out there. I'm not actually a recipe developer. What you're seeing is me posting finished products of existing recipes. But as I was kind of between jobs, I was thinking, like, could I do it? Right now, food is the most creatively fulfilling thing in my life. Is there a way for me to make food part of what I do professionally. My professional background is in like journalism and digital media, so I have a bit of a leg up when it comes to content creation for the internet. But recipe development and, and being able to speak from a place of authority was new. So that was really why I started it, was just to figure out what my perspective was. Like I didn't launch with a lot of fanfare or a really fleshed out, this is what I'm here to do. Um, Mm. I really wanted to make it for me and just find my voice on food and start sharing some recipes. And so I really just wanted to like hone my skills and see if I could turn it into something, you know, so it's kind of a a boring, practical (laughs) answer. I
0: think that's the answer that people need to hear right now. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people that are going to relate to that, not just in this time, but I think in general, everyone goes through these different waves or chapters or whatever metaphor you want to use where they're trying to maybe think outside the box or find their passion. And I think you did that. And even yeah. if it's not a full-time job yet, mm-hmm. it's giving you that outlet to get in touch with those options.
1: Yeah. And it, it it's a good creative outlet. It's challenged me to kind of hone my cooking and, and baking skills So I I wanted to make sure that it was fun and creative. And my biggest fear was that it would take the fun out of food by making it work. Has it? No, it's it's been if anything, it's it's pushed me more out of my comfort zone in a way because I tend to when I find a recipe that I like, I'm like, great, that's my recipe. That's the one I'm going to go to I don't need another one for that particular thing. But as part of the food blog, it's really pushed me to read more about recipes and techniques and the history of certain foods to understand them in a way that then helps me create my own sort of original takes on recipes.
0: Yeah, I want to bring it back to something you just said, Mm -hmm. which is your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So you went from this is just something I do with my husband, it's practical, but it's also a creative outlet. Mm -hmm. And now you are developing and strengthening this website and social media of Mm -hmm. the practical kitchen. So how do you feel about representing your culture and other cultures in the kitchen? Do you feel a pull to stay in your quote unquote cultural lane or do you feel a responsibility to challenge food borders to show what modern kitchens can do with these cultures in a positive way?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, because it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, It's interesting. I I don't think I realized quite how much my like Jewish identity and like cultural identity factors into the foods I make, because I generally don't think of myself as making a lot of Jewish food. Hmm. But it has just sort of happened that way that like the first bread recipe I made and fell in love with that like sort of started me down this was bagels. You know, that when I'm stocking up on pantry staples, matzo ball mix goes in there. So I've had to think a lot about what it means that I'm like a white Jewish person of European descent making things like egg rolls or homemade tortillas and samosa pot pie. And how do I respect those cultures while still kind of fitting them into my life? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I, I kind of keep coming back to is... The idea of food is kind of a a bridge between cultures. And I think there's a lot of things, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't really do takeout ever. Like we would eat Middle Eastern food. We would eat Chinese food on Christmas. And like that was kind of it. And so thinking about, you know, I, I always thought I didn't like lentils, but then I tried dal. Which, like, no one told me was lentils before I tried it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, lentils are amazing. Doll is amazing. And then I was like, what else can I do with Doll? Like, all I want to do is eat this amazing, delicious food. I mean, there's so, there's so many things. Jimmy always likes to remind me when we started dating, I hadn't had burritos. I hadn't had like a Bloomin' Onion at a steakhouse. I hadn't had Eggs Benedict. Like there were just so many.
0: I love how much that reveals about what he believes culture is.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) Truly though, it's it's hilarious now because he had such a limited palate when we started dating because he he doesn't eat cold meat. So like when we... (laughs) When we started dating, everywhere we went, he was like, I'll take the chicken tenders.
0: This isn't a religious thing, though. This is just a Jimmy thing. This is just a Jimmy thing. His
1: his palate is much diversified now. But in a lot of ways, we've sort of helped each other sort of step out of our comfort zone by trying new things. I didn't really eat pork ever, not because my family kept kosher, but just when you're Jewish, it's not really, you're not passing down like ham recipes, Mm -hmm.
0: So will you put things with pork on the practical kitchen now?
1: Yes, I actually have a recipe going up soon that's a pork tenderloin um, Mm. recipe. Yeah, so I have no problem doing that now. I don't keep kosher. I don't really feel a responsibility to stay in my lane as like a Jewish person because Jewish food is not really my expertise. Like I don't like noodle kugel and... Um, you know, most of our foods are sort of holiday related. So when holidays come up, I'm happy. I have a hamantaschen recipe on the blog. I have a apples and honey babka for um, Rosh Hashanah on the blog. But I don't necessarily feel like that's an area of expertise. It's not like what I'm looking to cook. But at the same time, as much as I don't feel a responsibility to stay in my lane, I do feel a responsibility to stay out of other people's lanes, or at least only dip into their lanes in a way that is respectful of their cultures and not appropriative. Mm -hmm. So I never want to couch myself as an expert in doll or an expert in how to make tortillas or how to shape egg rolls. I always want to talk about them in a way that explains how they fit into my life and why they're practical to me or what they unlocked for me. So I always thought I didn't like corn tortillas. I was like, flour tortillas, that's the only tortilla. Corn tortillas are horrible. But then I saw, um, I think it was on YouTube, um, a recipe for corn tortillas. And I was like, oh, that's masa flour, water, and salt. Like, that's so simple. There's no risk in me trying it myself. That'd be cool to, like, say I made tortillas. And it turns out homemade tortillas are amazing. They're so good. And you can make just as many as you need. You don't have to buy one of the whole packs of 48 Yeah. For me, you know, I'm not an expert in Mexican food. I'm not an expert in making tortillas, but I I am really curious to learn about other cultures. And, you know, I feel like you learn something when you make food from another culture, you learn something about it. And there's bits and pieces of those things that find their way into my kitchen. So my goal is always to be respectful of the ways I I borrow from other cultures. Mm. Because I think it opens people up to new experiences. And there are ways of using those flavors or understanding those cultures better through food that you can do at home in a way that doesn't involve a lot of effort.
0: Hence the practical part. Yeah. Do you think one of your kind of unofficial mission statements for the Practical Kitchen is to encourage people to step out of their comfort zone and to maybe build those bridges between cultures using food?
1: yeah i think it is a little bit a little bit that i think right now the the tagline or sort of mission that i have on the blog it's a little bit tongue in cheek it's making food comma that's good enough yeah i like that <laughs> and my intent with it is really what i what i was trying to do with the blog in addition to it being practical is I'm a big advocate of um, fat activism and fat acceptance and anti-diet culture sort of perspectives. And I really wanted to make it a place where you could just be, just the fact that you're making food is good enough. And it's not about being perfect, but it's about trying something new. It's about saying you did it. You're making food. The food is good enough. And the fact that you're making food is also good enough.
0: Good enough. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's all these rules about food and flavors and scary things that, you know, you don't want to try lentils or mushrooms or whatever. And it's not about like force yourself to like these things that you don't like, but it's just about saying like just the act of making food is good enough in its own way. Like it is, it is a step towards accomplishing something or reaching across an aisle or trying something new or learning a skill. Yeah, And I think that applies to sort of the approach to cultures as well that I take.
0: I like that because you said before, you know, you weren't an expert on any of these things. So you felt nervous at first to say, you know, I make egg rolls or I make homemade tortillas. Mm -hmm. But the good enough part is saying you don't need to be an expert.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You don't Mm -hmm. need to be an Italian cook or an Indian cuisine Mm -hmm. cook Mm -hmm. to try it. Just go for it.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, though, like, I do want to be clear, I feel very strongly about not appropriating from other cultures. So I'm not encouraging just sort of willy nilly, like do take whatever. But I'm saying try a little bit. And if you're like, oh, you know what? I actually do really like those lentils. Then maybe that's a sign Mm -hmm. that that you should learn more about Indian food. Okay. Last week I was working on a recipe for it was a recipe I grew up eating. It's just called chicken curry. It's literally tomato sauce with chicken and like a tablespoon of curry powder. Coincidentally, I was also watching an episode of Ugly Delicious, which was talking about Indian food, where they were talking about how curry has been colonized by the British and all these Indian chefs were like, I would like to just do away with the word curry. It's a problematic kind of dish. It's such a big umbrella. So I made sure to kind of include in my recipe, like for more on the history of curries, like here's where you can read, because I'm not sure what else you call something that is literally tomato sauce with curry powder. Like it, it is a, a curry, I suppose. But I do always encourage people, you know, if you like that, then maybe that's a sign that you should try an Indian cookbook or look up, you know, something that is authentic. And then there's nothing wrong with you making it, but understanding where it comes from or or who the experts are, I do think is important.
0: Yeah. Authenticity sometimes people say comes from experience or exposure Mm -hmm. from being there. Do you have any experience? Have you traveled and experienced any of these things on site
1: I, I wish I had done more, I will say. I have had pierogies in Poland. I've had um, Middle Eastern food in in Israel. I've had baguettes in Paris. Most of the travel I did, I was like a broke college student. And so my friend and I, when we were traveling around like Spain and Paris and and England and stuff, we went to a lot of McDonald's because the menu was always the same. It was super affordable. So I would love to like do more travel to really appreciate the food.
0: If it was just about food, where would you go? I'll, and I'll let you say more than one. I'll give you three wishes.
1: <laughs> Italy would be my top choice. Top choice. I would love to go to those like tiny villages in Italy where you can like learn how to make pasta from the grannies, and that would be like my dream. French food is more complicated than I usually cook, but I would love to go back to Paris and actually be able to appreciate what they're doing and not just be like, I recognize the name Croque Monsieur from French class. So I'd love to go back to Paris and I would love to do Indian food. There's just so many different flavors and regions. You know, if it's a genie wish trip, it would be like, give me the tour of all the Indian foods. Yeah. Yeah. That would be amazing.
0: Good wishes. Those were Mm -hmm. good ones. So you didn't grow up in a, a strict religious household. You didn't have a kosher kitchen. Yeah. But did you feel, especially on holidays, a link to the Jewish community through food? And do you now want to push that and elevate that so that on Jewish holidays, you're doing it even more?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Growing up, I I don't think I felt a really strong connection through food. At school, we would do hamantashen. We would go through all the like ritual stuff. Passover is very mm-hmm. food centric. There's the seder plate that has all the food that symbolizes things, but it's the the holidays aren't really about having like good food as much as they are like symbolic food or yeah my parents because we got so much of it through school we didn't necessarily do it at home right you could go to the like hanukkah school celebration or the hanukkah synagogue mm-hmm. celebration and you would get your latkes and your jelly donuts there so my parents didn't necessarily feel a drive to like make jelly donuts and latkes at home so now sort of my generation and my family like the kids who are my age have grown up and now some of my cousins are starting to have kids and and stuff Now I'm starting to think a little bit more about these traditions we had as kids. We've become sort of less observant, but I Mm -hmm. kind of suspect when I have kids or whatever, those things will be more important because it will be important to instill in them and then leave them to choose, you know, how do they wish to carry that on in their lives as they become adults?
0: Well, with that... Mm -hmm. From my understanding, and you can correct me on this, mm-hmm. the Jewish community, there's the kind of level of, of observance you are. So there's mm-hmm. the religious side, but the Jewish community is also a culture in itself. Yeah. So it's culture and religion. And those two, it's not like you have to be the same level of both. Yes. You can be very culturally Jewish, but not necessarily very observant. Is that correct? Am yeah. i I?
1: That is extremely correct. I would say, religiously, I'm an atheist. Like, <laughs> I, I'm an atheist. Maybe agnostic, like if if I saw something convincing, I wouldn't just be like, no. But culturally it's, it is very important to me to carry on those traditions. And and that is sort of how I grew up. My mom is a professor of Middle East studies. She speaks Hebrew fluently. And so when I was growing up, I had like the alphabet puzzle and then I had the Hebrew alphabet puzzle. I watched Sesame Street and I had DVDs of Shalom Sumsum, which is Israeli Sesame Street.
0: I'm sure someone out there knows exactly what you were just saying.
1: <laughs> Instead of Big Bird, they have a giant porcupine, I believe. But I, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I basically grew up with like American media and Israeli media Um, and going to Jewish day school. I took Hebrew class every day, you know, so it was really more cultural than about religion. And that is true within the Jewish community. There are people who are Jewish and who are proud of their Jewish identity, but aren't necessarily super observant and religious. And there are even tiers within that where, We had friends growing up who kept kosher and couldn't eat at our house because they kept kosher. And then they had friends who kept more kosher than them who couldn't eat at their houses. Oh, wow. There's kind of layers and levels within it. And it's up to each family or synagogue or whatever to establish their own level of of, um, observance. Going to a Jewish day school meant I went to school with a lot of people who kept kosher. All of our school lunches had to be kosher. When our parents sent lunches, they had to be kosher. So, I was very familiar with all of that stuff growing up. But yeah, it hasn't, as, as an adult, um, I like a cheeseburger, I think, a little too much.
0: <laughs> you don't necessarily feel a pressure to stay in your cultural lane. Mm hmm. But do you put a little bit of pressure on yourself to make sure that your Jewish culture is represented, the culture side of it?
1: Yes, that is true. I very much like to kind of work it in because I think it is part of who I am and my identity and my food journey. And I feel really strongly about continuing like the Jewish legacy Not to go too dark, but I mean, we we spent a lot of time talking about the Holocaust when you're Jewish. And so there's a lot of pressure, you know, to make sure that certain things live on. And the reason I was in Poland was actually for a week long Holocaust seminar. So it was this sort of weird you know, in America, you feel very secure in your Jewish identity and being somewhere Mm -hmm. where you don't feel as secure was very interesting. But at the same time, it was getting to experience Polish food and things like that. I was starting to feel kind of connections between sort of my ancestry, even though all of my family was in the United States before World War II. I I feel very, very much an obligation to not hide being Jewish. And so I want to make sure that it's there because it is part of who I am. And I think it's important to be a Jewish food blogger who isn't like a kosher food blogger or who isn't only specializing in Jewish food, but to say that there's kind of a really big umbrella in the Jewish identity and that you can be Jewish and make hamantashen or babka or whatever. And it it doesn't all have to be religious. So I do feel like a pressure to represent that but not in a way that it feels like a burden it's it's something that i take a point of pride in and the most important thing to me is that i'm not hiding it
0: yeah i think that's really valuable and mm-hmm. and i think it helps bring us back and it connects us to history like you were saying with your experience in poland mm-hmm. and on your blog you say you like to make links to things and if you're interested in this check this out and mm-hmm. i think that's really important cuz food is a it's a it's a safe avenue for connecting mm-hmm. to culture. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that you're you're putting that out there and that you took this risk and pushed yourself out of your uh, your comfort zone to create the practical kitchen. I think it's great. Yeah,
1: thank you. Can I add um, one yeah. more thing? Because I do a lot of bread. People often sort of say to me like, "Oh, I've always wanted to make bread, but I'm too intimidated." And I I have a post on the blog that is sort of someone wrote in with a question about this. And one of the things I wrote was bread has been made for thousands of years, right? It's flour, salt, water, yeast, like that's it. And even when it goes wrong, it can still be good. And the connection I made on the blog was like, even when the Jews were escaping Egypt in the Passover story and their bread didn't have time to rise, they found a way to like style that out into matzah. Mm. The important thing isn't that you nail your loaf of bread on the first try, right? When you read bread recipes, there's a lot of technical specifications and temperatures and percentages. And people who are writing recipes like that are looking for very, very precise results. But I think there's something to be learned from the sort of bread fail that became matzah that is to say there is a lesson of like resilience through food and being willing to just give it a try, and even if it doesn't end up the way you wanted it to or you don't end up with that perfect result, there might be a way to salvage it and make it become something that like people are eating centuries later around the Passover table.
0: Wow. I, I'm going to go back and read that one. <laughs> We're going to do a lightning round about mixing flavors. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Classic and delicious mix
1: so is that 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 like salty and sweet?
0: like a comfort food, just kind of classic ooh, okay. everyone recognizes the name and it's just good
1: ooh, this would be this one I actually came to later in life. I learned it from Jimmy's family. bagels with cream cheese and bacon on them. ooh, so comforting
0: just plain cream cheese.
1: You could do like garlic or veggie or whatever, but I I thought it was so strange. And then someone was like, well, I guess it's like a budget version of bagels and cream cheese and lox. And I was like, oh, yes, that's the Irish Catholic equivalent, I guess, of the bagels of cream cheese and lox. Is Jimmy Irish Catholic? He's Irish Catholic. I don't eat seafood. So I'm like, yes, give me the cream cheese and bacon. It's a kosher sin. I love it. It's delicious. (laughs)
0: Okay, so what's up next? We've got what is unexpectedly delicious? So you've already used up your bagel, cream cheese, bacon.
1: So yeah, so on the blog, I have a recipe for a pear and Gruyere tart that I I came up with the recipe because in the TV show Pushing Daisies, they mention a pear and Gruyere tart and Pushing Daisies loves quirky wordplay. So I was like, is that a real flavor combination that would be good? Or are they just doing quirky wordplay because they rhyme? And so I tried it and it was amazing, like a fruit and cheese plate, but in one bite. Sold. Yeah, Sold.
0: Okay, two cultures in one dish.
1: That, I would say the samosa pot pie is my favorite sort of blended dish. It's like peas and potatoes with Indian spices, but in a puff pastry pot pie.
0: Was that just like you had a random food craving? What made you come up with that one?
1: There's a a food blogger we like, Jimmy and I like, who did a samosa quesadilla where it's pea and potato filling, but in a flour tortilla. For my birthday, we were doing a pie theme and we wanted something vegetarian. And so we were like, what if we took that filling but made it in a pie? And it was mm. such a huge hit and we make it all the time now.
0: Ooh, okay. Looking that one up too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's a mix that maybe you were hopeful about, but it, it didn't work out?
1: Um, so I have one I, I was sort of hopeful about, but I, there was an error on my part that led to it not working out. We were trying buttermilk roast chicken from the Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat cookbook.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, she's
1: great. She's so great. And there's a variation where you use yogurt and saffron. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Like, let me try that. I accidentally bought vanilla yogurt and (laughs) did not realize until after a whole chicken had marinated in it for 24 hours. It cooked beautifully. Like the yogurt chemically did its job. I bet it looked
0: gorgeous. (laughs) Smelled
1: like a box of cookies. It it was not. Yeah, we ended up, I think we ended up shredding it and hiding it in some grilled cheese. And that sort of salvaged it. But you could not eat it plain. What's a
0: mix you haven't tried yet?
1: I have a lengthy list of things I want to put inside pierogies. Ever since I did... The dull pierogies. I'm like, I want to do Nutella pierogies. I want to do pizza pierogies. I want to do masala pierogies, Marsala pierogies.
0: Pierogies are a type of dumpling. Yes. So, what makes it different from any other dumpling?
1: Um, For me, I find pierogi dough is the easiest dumpling dough to work with. Okay, Ravioli pasta dough is not very forgiving or stretchy. Um, If you're doing like bao buns, you need to get like the pleats kind of perfect. Pierogies are a very rustic dumpling and they're just very easy to make.
0: What's the dish you make the most?
1: There's two I would say. One is tuna Newberg, which is like a comfort food I've had since I was a kid. My grandma came up with it herself. It's like a warm tuna sauce that you serve over rice, which some people are like, that sounds great. And other people find revolting. It's kind of polarizing, but I love it. It's super easy. Jimmy hates tuna. So I'll make a big batch and then eat it myself (laughs) for lunch all week long. The other one would be fancy grilled cheeses. Anytime I have like food scraps to use up, I'm like, can I grilled cheese this? Like what cheese do I put with it? I'm gonna make some bread. Like, let's turn it into grilled cheese.
0: I think you just came up with a T-shirt option for the Practical (laughs) Kitchen is, can Can, I grill cheese this? Can
1: I grill cheese it? Yeah. Yes. And it turns out you can grill cheese a lot of things.
0: Well, I plan to put that into my repertoire. (laughs) So thank you for the inspiration.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Let's do one last. How about the most difficult, but totally worth it?
1: That would be any kind of babka. Okay any kind of babka they're so delicious and they're like filled with flavors. Everyone always loves them, but they are kind of messy and a little bit tricky to make. but then, like once you know how to do it, you want to kind of do it all the time.
0: I'll get my husband to make those. yeah, yeah, he's better at that kind of thing. okay. well, let's close out with. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite thing about balancing cultures? I'm not talking about my podcasts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm talking about the, the action or the feeling or the dedication to balancing cultures in the kitchen and in life in general.
1: Yeah, I think for me, the thing I like most is learning new things or seeing things in a new way, whether that's trying a new ingredient or a new recipe or going to a restaurant from, you know, that I am not super familiar with the food or in Los Angeles, I've learned there's like eight different regions of Mexico. And so you can't just go get tacos. It's like, are you getting tacos from this region or that region? And so starting to understand that for me... Is the thing I like most is just learning how other people see the world and how things that like I didn't grow up eating are old hat to them, the way things I grew up eating are new and foreign to them. Yeah. So that for me is kind of the key. The other thing is just since Jimmy and I, he's Irish Catholic, I'm Jewish. Both of us are have sort of similar approaches to religion, where we're like. The holidays are cool and fun and there's a cultural aspect and stuff. As we've had to kind of blend our families and, you know, sort of think about having kids or future generations, for me, balancing cultures, it's, it's a way of keeping traditions alive while modernizing them and making them accessible for future generations. That's what I really like about doing that.
0: Nice. A big thank you to Rebecca for joining us. If you're hungry after listening, go check out thepracticalkitchen.com and follow her on Facebook and Instagram for regular inspiration. All details in the show notes. Until next time, this was Balancing Cultures, and I'm Megan Kitchen.